This episode of Data Mesh Radio is brought to you in conjunction with Next Data, the startup Jamak Dehani, the creator of Data Mesh, formed to focus on many of the challenges we discuss here in Jamak's Corner. As she states in her post announcing the company, if you are a rebel who shares our cause, a data leader who wants to adopt and help design our technology, or an investor interested in shaping the future of analytics and AI, we invite you to get involved at nextdata.com or by emailing hello at nextdata.com. I do encourage you to reach out to my good friend and awesome co-host in these episodes, Jamak. Unfortunately, because of the holidays, we missed scheduling soon enough for another Jamax Corner for this to be published on time. What I'm going to do on this one instead is to share my thoughts on Jamax's announcement of her new company and then slap on the full second recording we did together instead of it kind of pieced up, which I did in episodes four through, I want to say, seven. The, the first recording, well, I'm not putting that on, it was meant to be more disjointed. We were trying to ask a single question in each recording. Um, if people ask, though, as well, I'll release more of the full recordings so people can kind of listen to those as well in the future. So if you haven't heard, Jamak announced her company, Next Data, on January 18th. If you want to check it out, it's at nextdata.com. And, but she also posted about why she started the company on Medium. And I thought it would be interesting to go over what she wrote about kind of the general industry backdrop as to why she started this company. Not going to be an ad for for the company. I'm cutting it off uh, before we get to the, and here's what we're going to do or anything like that. But I thought these are some words from Schmack that would be useful to give some color to. So here's where it started. When I first developed the concept of data mesh in 2018, I understood the magnitude of the change I was proposing. I didn't quite understand how people would respond. The idea took on a life of its own. It's become the subject of countless conferences and articles. Hundreds of organizations from a variety of industries are attempting data mesh. It, I've helped many with their journey. Now, I fully understand why the response has been so powerful. Decentralized data is the revolution humankind urgently needs now. Okay, so that was quote unquote. Uh, so I'm going to cut in here and say it can feel a bit funny to say humankind needs this. But if you really listen to Jamak and you really think about it, if we believe the cure for many diseases and workable solutions to tackle climate change, ways to make the world far more equitable, lots of different things like that, if we believe that there are only some you know uh, way of doing analytics in a far better way, some analytics or AI ML away, it makes sense that this actually could impact humankind. If we really unlock and democratize the ability to access data and drive insights, it really could be for the betterment of humanity. Yes, the most likely users are going to be corporations, but possibly those corporations or public-private partnerships or whatever can really do amazing things to actually help humanity out. There's so much information that is trapped or that is not being leveraged in the way that it could. And, you know, hopefully we can unlock that. And yes, again, sometimes that'll be for corporate profits, but hopefully we can find other ways to, to leverage that as well. So uh, back to the kind of quote of the blog post, right? The value promised from data hasn't been realized primarily because today's ways of managing data for analytics, AI, and machine learning were conceived in a paradigm where data was treated like oil, as a precious resource to be extracted, pumped via pipelines to a storage facility, processed and consumed. This creates a compounding series of problems. Fragile data pipelines break. Processes are fragmented. Data producers spend their time on low-value low processes, mostly moving data between systems. 
without ever fully considering how data can and should be used. Merely accessing and understanding the data in centralized lakes requires specialized expertise. Silos proliferate and fill unquestioned. The struggle to get timely access to data remains, and trust is lost. The the frustration is palpable. I felt it when I worked with data practitioners, data leaders, and professionals of all kinds. At the organizational level, the methods used to collect and centralize data have slowed down data innovation. At a societal level, the need to collect and control data is leading to an imbalance of power, limiting AI-based innovation to the few who have access to the largest pile of data. The current methods of data architecture are inefficient at best and pathologically unfair at worst. We either have disparate and disconnected data sources or monopolized stale data collections. So Scott again, and end quote, Scott again, cutting in here. Um, So I think this might feel a bit over the top, but really this is the frustration. This is what comes through when when I talk to Jmac, whether on the podcast or, or personally, this is what has been frustrating her so much. It comes through in her talks and, and everything as well. Let's look at what she said. Our technologies are built for a different paradigm. She's talked about this a little bit more in the more recent Jmac's Corners, where the movement and amassing of data is the point. This comes up in almost every conversation I have with a business person. The data work isn't the point, right? Data mesh isn't the point. It's an enabler to driving business value. That can feel obvious when we say it, but it's not how much of the data work is actually done. When the rubber hits the road, the point is building the platform. The point is building the data product. The point is doing the data work. It's do, building the pipelines. It's moving it around. It's doing the transformation. It's, it's you know breaking it down and, and then trying to smear the semantics back on. It's not an information unit to exchange to drive value. That should be the point. What drives business value? The fragmented processes challenge is is an especially big one because we have so many specialized tools. There is no real holistic approach to dealing with data. An upcoming episode with uh, Ananth Pakaldurai, who's um, the the author of the Data Engineering Weekly uh, newsletter, and and we were talking about this that everything is so fragmented because everything is about doing individual little bits instead of how do we do this from start to finish, right? You think about maybe a workout plan or something like that. And it's like, everything is the exact specific exercise instead of like, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to get healthy? Are we trying to to build muscle? Are we trying to do this? Like, what are we actually trying to do instead of we're trying to do these exact, um, these exact exercises? You can think as well of of the cable cabinet. You've probably seen those pictures of amazingly well done sets of cables for, you know, routing and switching kind of cabinet. And it's all color coded and zip tied together. You know, uh, there's even like a subreddit on it called, you know, cable porn, which is about how beautifully and amazing these these, uh, things can be put together, right? Well, the way we do data is the other, the complete opposite. It's a hodgepodge rat's nest of cables with no organization. Everything is individually connected one to the other. And that it's all built on kind of this thing where if anything goes wrong, how do I find the start of the cable and the end of the cable? I have no idea. Everything is fragile because everything is crucial. Any step in the process can break everything. And there are hidden dependencies everywhere. When we say everyone owns X, whether that is everyone owns security or everyone owns data quality, you know, everyone says if everyone owns it, no one owns it, right? Well, when every tool is crucial to your data pipeline, your data processing, your your building your data products, none of them are because you didn't build a pipeline that has any resiliency. The available tools, though, don't allow us to easily build towards that resiliency, right? It's very, very difficult and expensive to do this right now. And one phrase I think in here that is crucial is, quote unquote, trust is lost. 
maybe not even lost, but was never even there in a lot of cases. There is so much skepticism from, you know, the business side of folks of around data because it's gone wrong for everyone so darn often, you know? How do we build a scalable approach to inherent trust and with inherent scale and nimbleness and agility? But if no one trusts the data, are they really going to even use it? So we're we're so focused on getting the data into a shape, but without really ensuring that there's trust. So no one will use it. Okay. I don't want this to be more about my commentary than the announcement. So, uh, and, and uh, kind of what Jumak was saying. So let's get back to it. Quote, data mesh has transformed our mental model of what a thriving data ecosystem looks like. But our tools and techniques leave us with a large capability gap that makes data mesh implementations difficult, expensive, and full of compromises. So then Shemak gets into talking about what next data is going to do. And what she's talking about is, you know, quote unquote, the data product container, a new unit of data value designed to be responsibly shared and used at scale. We are reimagining a new developer and user experience native to data mesh and centered around data products. Our vision is to build a world where AI, ML, and analytics are powered by decentralized, responsible, and equitable data ownership. So, you know, some of that is is about the company and, you know, take that for what you will. But I, I wanted to give another note on this about the data product container aspect. I've had a lot of really great feedback on Jamax Corner number 14 about the, you know, quote unquote, the data can't protect itself. We need a new way to bring inherent trust to data, but our tooling is not designed to have trust at that macro level. Everything is about micro level trust. Hey, you can trust this data product because you know me, you know, I built it for you. I'm giving you all of this stuff instead of hey, we've built an ecosystem where you can actually trust it and use it and you know where it is. You, If you don't know immediately what it means, you can go and ask someone. Like you, you are creating the safety nets. You are creating the ability for someone to say, okay, I understand for this to be in the data mesh, you know, actually set of, of data products. It has to have been fully contained from beginning to end and that it has, it hasn't had some transformation that I don't know about and that I can actually look at, right? I thought up a decent analogy here, which is kind of the food service industry or water drinking, at least in the, in the US, where there's an inherent assumption that this is going to be safe because somebody has regulated it. Right. You think about water drinking in the US and there was this there's, you know, the Flint thing. And then there's the one in in, uh, Alabama or Mississippi where like their entire water system collapsed. And it was such huge news in the US simply because there's an assumption that we we don't have to to verify that is this safe to drink. And we need to get to that with data, that it's safe to drink from this. I know Jack hates the water analogies, but we need to get to a place where you just inherently think this is safe to drink from. And we we do need to reimagine in general what tools can do. Tooling on the operational plane has, has changed so much with the microservices and DevOps revolutions. How can we actually leverage that and understand that and to change it on data, right? We have not seen the approach to tooling really change yet. And, you know, Jamak's looking to do that. She's talked about that on the podcast. But in general, I hope we have a whole lot of companies doing this. Time will tell, but we do need some brave souls tackling this hard but crucial kind of question and challenge. So again, you know, I've cut out some of the the stuff that she put in. I don't want this to get into being an ad for the company. It's about looking at what the problem sets Jamak is seeing that are relevant and prominent because so many of these are kind of hidden aspects of data mesh for a lot. It's not the parts that get really talked about. The parts that get talked about the most are how do we do the architecture or let's change the organization. But a lot of it goes back to why? Why are things so broken as is? Why can't we just decentralize and everything's good? Because we don't have trust built in. 
And if you don't trust your data sources, right? Like, I mean, you can look at the way people uh, get tripped up with conspiracy theories and all that stuff and fake news and all, all that fun stuff because they didn't trust their their news sources. And we have to be able to embrace that about human beings that we might not inherently trust information that's put in front of us. So how do we ensure that someone can actually dig into and that, you know, they're not going down a, a random conspiracy uh, <laughs> rat hole that they can understand why can I actually trust this? Because so much of us have, and I mean, me personally, maybe I'm just putting myself in here, but the way that we've done business well is by trusting in our own instincts, trusting in our own ability and understanding of the world and things like that. If we want to move people to being more trusting of the data, we we have to show them why that matters and get them to a place where they can say, I can actually leverage this. We need to, to create that the conversation. So I'm going to shut up now. Uh, I've talked way too much. I apologize as per usual. But um, And then as promised, I am uh, going to stick on the recording of the first kind of contiguous long Jamax Corner recording, which is going to be about 50 minutes on the end of this as well. So I think it's good to see kind of how the general conversation flows and, and understand how all the different conversation and question points all flow and build up. And I think um, doing that with the additional ones, the the third and the fourth recording and any subsequent recordings are also helpful to folks. So hopefully you enjoy that. Hopefully this was useful. And I do want some more feedback on this. Like, what are you actually feeling in reaction to this? Very, very excited for another episode of Jamak's Corner. So Jamak, thank you again so much for, for being on here today. And um, what we're going to talk about today is kind of a, a set of questions that we're going to go over over the next few episodes about, you know, within your book, uh, page 13, you talk about what is a paradigm shift and like why data mesh is a paradigm shift, what is a paradigm and all, all of that. And let's talk a little bit about the like what that means but also why it's important and why you know Thomas Kuhn talked about there's incremental progress in science and there's revolutionary progress and that within data mesh we need to stop trying to only do these little incremental steps because so much of what we've done in data clearly hasn't really been working for a long time. So trying to incrementally uh, move past that is we need to really take some hard shifts. So I think um, let's start a little bit with that, that like why you picked that and and uh, why you, you included Kuhn and why you've talked about him in a lot of things. And then we can start to talk about where do we really need to completely rethink where we we need these hard shifts and then we can kind of cover a couple of those across a few episodes. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me again. Um, maybe you're right. Maybe we start with why did I use, um, you know, the reference to the work that Thomas Kuhn had done in 1960s, in fact, um, I think that reference is probably used in many different scenarios, but it was very apt in the case of observations around pain points with existing paradigms and the need for the shift. I think, well, let's, let's talk about his work. So in his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolution, he introduced this concept of a paradigm shift, and he was a historian of science and philosopher of science. And what he had done was observing how, how, how science has progressed through the history and he had come up with 
kind of four phases of science. And I felt we were in one of those phases with regard to data management for, you know, kind of analytical big data. So what he describes uh, is a phase of normal science where, you know, there is a set of paradigms have been established, set of assumptions. Within those assumptions, we are just proving to do a bunch of observations and scientific experiments to see what we expect to see pretty much, right? And then he said, well, as we do that, we start seeing some anomalies, right? We can't really solve some of the, we can't really answer some of the observations. And then we go through this crisis phase, which is, oh my God, the, the universe doesn't make sense anymore. And we have to like fundamentally change the way we are describing the scenarios. And that then we move to, you know, revolutionary science. So like, you know, what the, um, what we were describing with the Newtonian kind of system of gravity, you know, we, we had a paradigm shift like with Einstein's like general relativity or with, you know, um, kind of Newtonian mechanics to quantum physics. So, so these are, we went subatomic and we observed and the, the laws of physics didn't make sense anymore, right? So so I think, so now what does this have anything to do with data mesh? What did I put it into the, in the book? Um, was because I felt we were in the crisis mode or the anomalies mode, but we weren't really talking about it. And in, in fact, there's another observation that Thomas Kuhn makes in his book that a lot of the times where the folks that come and talk about the anomalies and surface this crisis are either novices, like they're just like, I don't know, students or people that just entered the field so they're not they don't have that well-established model system of the world in their in their brain or they're outsiders that coming into a field and i felt that was the case probably um, you know relevant to data mesh as well um i came from outside i came from you know very heavy real-time data-driven distributed system building world like distributed operational systems that they were heavily working with data came to the world of like traditional data analytics, BI, and observed the crisis or the anomalies that existed and kind of surfaced that, right? That's that's basically what happened. And it just, it just felt like <laughs> the history is probably repeating a little bit here. And what was the crisis was that you know, we've, we have made a certain assumption to describe the universe of data manage- management based on centralization, then based on pipelining, based on functional silos. And that all made sense to us. So we assumed that that's the world and we were incrementally making changes, but yet the bottom line, the outcome for the organizations were plateauing in terms of um, you know increased value and results. So there was a mismatch between the efforts that we're putting in to manage the data and the actual val- and the cost of that and the, the actual value. So, so let's call that a crisis moment. And then we've got to now think about, okay, so then what's the revolutionary bit? What's, what's the thing we've got to redefine and reassume um, within this ecosystem? Yeah. And I, I liked especially what you said there towards the end of the, output of the value was plateauing. It's not saying that what had happened historically in data was not of value. It's not saying, hey, like all this stuff, you know, we should have been doing data mesh 20 years ago or anything like that. It's it's the scale up versus scale out um, debate of the early 2010s in the distributed systems world of, hey, scale up, the, the cost of incremental scaling is go the cost is logarithmic, whereas the value is linear or often even sublinear, right? Of serving these incremental customers, it's uh, it, you're getting less and less value from them, and you're spending more and more, and that obviously doesn't work from a unit economic standpoint. So, like exactly what you're talking about. Um, and and I do uh, I don't know if uh, if you've ever seen the the movie The Outsiders or whatever, but isn't that the one of like pony boy or whatever. I think it's like, it's from the early eighties. Like, I think that's the movie. Anyway. Uh, I, I don't know. We, we, we might make some jokes from that in future episodes, but um, so I think this is a really important thing of uh, I've talked to a couple of people that are coming out. Like Alice Parker is just coming out from doing her master's thesis. And so she doesn't have the scar tissue 
of, well, this is the way we've done it. And, you know, I, I talk to these, these data people and like Martin Chesborough is somebody that I, I really admire because he's been doing data warehouse stuff for 30 years. And he's like, oh yeah, no, we totally need to change. And I'm totally ready to change versus these other people have been like, I, I don't want to change. I don't want to change. So, um, but like you, you kind of mentioned three things that, um, that were kind of core around how data management was done. Do you think those are the, the three kind of core things that we really need to look at, at really moving away from that centralization, the pipelining and the functional silos? Or is that like, if you were to say, what was the most broken piece or is it difficult to say there is a single most broken piece because they're all intertwined <laughs> or? Yeah, I think it's probably a hierarchy. And I think for this audience, we probably now should navigate the hierarchy a little bit um, top down because I see a lot of folks, let's say, let's say centralization, let's say data collection, centralized uh, ownership, control, and architecture of the data is the top level bottleneck. But then you scratch that, like you scratch that, okay, okay, so say, okay, if we, if we made that assumption, what other consec, you know, kind of consequent assumptions we made, and then if you break those ones down, what are the technology that have been developed to satisfy those assumptions, right? So I think it's like a hierarchy that we've got to scratch. And then the more we get to the to the bottom, the leaf nodes, I think the more practical advice gets. So so maybe let's let's just scratch it a little bit from like just traverse it from top down and we can see how where the conversation goes. Yeah, so I mean, when, when you are looking at that, when you're talking to somebody that has been doing data for a long time, what what do you think is the 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 practical advice to rethink? Like, what do you think is the thing where you say, "Hey, here is the assumption. Here's the the thing that will cause the most friction because it's the most deeply held um, belief that you didn't know you had this belief, right? It's a it's a subsurface level belief that yeah. you've just kind of made that this is an ingrained assumption. Yeah, I still like to go back to like talk about these fundamental series of assumptions, but just to answer this, like what is this magical litmus test that I can give you to self, you know, assess at any point? Are you making a decision based on these ingrained assumptions of the past versus I need to challenge my decision? I don't think there's one magical litmus test that I can give people, but if, if the, it was, it would have been, am I assuming constant constancy? Is that the word to be constant, like a state of constancy and control, a centralized synchronized point of control for this to be successful uh, or not? I think that's one of the litmus tests. Like for, for example, when people say, oh, we want to do, you know, ontologies or master data management or, you know, have one definition of the customer. The approach to that often requires a point of syn- single point of synchronization. You've got one definition of su- customer somewhere controlled by one entity that everybody else needs to adopt. And that essentially assumes some inherent consistency, you know, a, a state of being constant. Uh, so then, so that's, I think that assumption needs to be challenged as opposed to you might say, hmm, how can I achieve the same outcome with a very different approach that assumes change, assumes a level of chaos, a level of change at different cadence at dif- in different points of time and in different places in the organizations around the customer. And I still want to have some form of it emergent consistent view of the customer how do i solve that that's a has a very very different solution so if i give one litmus test are you assuming a synchronization synchronization is the achilles heel of any um, distributed system right whether it's a human system or machine system so it would be that but i think to be like a bit more example give you a bit more examples maybe we just let's just navigate this hierarchy of assumptions and see where I, I think exactly like um, when people I, I talked to somebody recently recently about um, master data management in data mesh and like the essentially it was 
well, you kind of have to have it more at the domain level. And you, you like the concept of master data management is that there is a master. And so it probably needs a different phrasing. It probably needs a new terminology because you, you, when you federate, when you decentralize and there is, you know, differences in fun between that, but like you are centralization is beneficial until it's not right. Exactly what you talked about. There's a plateauing of there's more spend and there's not the same incremental value return or even no value return, negative value return. You've, you've hit those, those kind of inflection points because of how complex our data is. And so the domains, like, you know, you don't want to say every two pizza team domain, you know, subdomain of subdomain of subdomain needs to do have this, you know, complex platform in and of themselves and all these things. But I mean, you, you started a company around this, right? You're, you're, you're saying that there's technology that is built around these assumptions. So like, is there a certain place where you think that these assumptions are the stickiest, where people aren't, um, are, are, are the least willing to react to when you're, when you're having these conversations? Yeah, and I think the reason for it is that, um, you know, as long as this is a a human problem, right, organizational people, but the technology and tools we use, they shape our behavior, they influence how we work. And because the technology has been organized around this meta operating model of the centralization and pipeline, then you know, those technologies are reinforcing that behavior. So let's let's make it a little bit more real with some examples. I think, you know, the, 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 the main top level problem is the centralization in my mind. It's this assumption of collection of data in one place um, or multiple places, doesn't matter nevertheless, but it's like the data team, the data warehouse, the data lake house, um, kind of architecture, not again, not the exact technology, but the architecture. But then the second level sticky problem that that creates is this pipeline thinking. So if you zoom out at a macro level within our organization, also across organizations globally, we have organized our activities, our goals, metrics, technology around pipeline. So you move data or transform out of your applications and then you put it into the warehouse or the lake and then you layer it with metadata and governance and observability. And then it's not finished yet. (laughs) And then you pipe it into your ML flow pipelines and then you extract a bunch of those and put them in your feature store. And then, and then, and then, and then pops out the other end, (laughs) supposedly the value. So we've got this really like pipeline thinking, all of our, I bet that if you put a, I don't know, a, a challenge out there and say like 10 companies, 20 companies drop your, you know, obfuscated enterprise data architecture, I bet they all look like a pipeline, boxes of stuff moving things around. And then what has happened is, the technology vendors is okay, let me make this life easier for you. So I will give you the workflow, all of the state of the art workflow management technologies. I will give you the metadata discovery. I will give you catalog and so on and so on. So I'll give you a feature store. Like, I mean, all these different kinds of store popping up to transition data from one state to another. Uh, So then it's really hard for people to, you know, detach themselves from these sticky pipelines, reconfigure and reconnect these tools in this autonomous node graph pipelines that reduces that lead time from data to value across a single data product, reconfigure themselves and reshape their behavior. So the technology to reshape the behavior of two people doesn't exist. And that's 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 kind of where I want to play, is to give people superpowers to detach themselves from this pipeline thinking um, and then, you know, and then reorganize now their activities around kind of these nodes that are independently delivering value rather than pipelines. In fact, in fact, if data meshes, you know, become, if, if it becomes business as usual, I don't think we will ever say data pipeline because data pipeline is not to me 
a valuable, purposeful thing to do. It's a means to an end. And we keep talking about data pipeline. I'm not getting passionate about it. Uh, you know, that's why I want us to keep talking about data product and really pipeline disappears um, or becomes a, you know, third third class concern. Yeah, it's 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 not where the value is added. It, it's it kind of reminds me of the underpants gnome thing of you know stage one collect underpants, step two, eh? step three profit, <laughs> and and uh, like it also reminds me a little bit of what you're talking about is kind of the processor wars from the early or from the like mid '90s about trying to just go to higher and higher frequencies, and then you know as soon as multi-threading came along where you've got, you know, you were saying synchronizing and synchronous versus async. And you think about like synchronous coordination and one, then two, then three, then four, then five, instead of like, hey, we're transforming this ball of, of information into an output that is a, a, you know, a usable information. You don't really care what step happens when, because it's about the output. It's about how you get to the thing. And you're providing that that capability to the people yeah. that are responsible for for doing that via the platform and the tooling and things. But it's not yeah. like you must do A, then B, then C, then D versus, hey, here's a list of things that, that need to be part of this output. But how you do that when, like, it doesn't matter, right? Like, yeah. what matters is, is the value output. And does everything have to have, you know, five nines of quality, whatever you want to call your different quality metrics when it's like the use case doesn't require that. So why would you spend on that? Well, but that's because our process requires that to get through this gate, we must have this much completeness or this much exactly what you're talking about. It's just, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I can go on and on. We can have like a whole episode around what is happening at the macro level around this whole idea of data pipelines, like this pipeline architecture that I just described, um, you know, it, it's, it's consuming so much of human effort and machine effort and money to keep it a check, like to automate it further and further, but it's still fundamentally the same thing. We're just keep, you know, creating this really complex and hairy um, solutions that take us further and create more and more gap from that data to value. Um, and we're throwing more tech at it, more money at it. We, we, we keep introducing these siloed personas. Like the reason we have a data app developer on one side, and then you have, you know, your analysts, data science on the other side, and now five sectional fragmented roles in between. Now we have ML engineer and analyst engineer and data engineer. And the reason we just define these roles and give people tasks that has no direct feedback as the value that they generated with that end outcome is because of this pipeline. I mean, if aliens came to some say alien civil, advanced civilization came to Earth and looked at this, I, I bet they will have a big giggle as we creating this really complex system that is not inherently designed around immediate, fast feedback and value. And that's what the software developer in me just kind of feels the pain because if you talk to app developers or software developers, they love showing value and having that rapid feedback. So conversely, in the operational world, that's where I came from, in the microservices world, we redesign ourselves around that rapid feedback uh, of the, the value, right? So we created those two pizza teams. We created cross-functional teams. We created microservices that deliver APIs as a product. Like all of these movements have happened uh, in 19... Was in 1995. In my, I think one of my first jobs, I was writing a workflow engine. Time moved, like we moved, like we actually. The word orchestration is almost a dangerous word to use in operational systems. We say choreography because orchestration, by definition, is a point of synchronization because you have a centralized definition, like single definition of your orchestration, and that's that's it's well known to be restrictive and you know, fragile when it comes to distributed systems. Orchestration, automated orchestration is almost a, I don't know, badge of honor that you put on the 
product that you're using. It's still a very much of a today's concept within the data world. So, so yeah, so this is, I think this is one of the stickiest problems that we have. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of what you're talking about, it, it feels almost like what you're talking about is that this pipeline thinking is waterfall, right? And when people think about the software development life cycle and they think about waterfall versus agile and not, let's not get into agile versus scaled out, agile versus team topologies or anything right now. But um, within this, this waterfall approach versus kind of moving to agile approach, what, what, do you have any main points? Like, was there anything that you thought was done really, really well in that? Or is there like, is there the anti-patterns or what, when we talk about microservices or DevOps or all these other things, or even product thinking from completely outside of software? When you, what, what inspired you? Like, what, what were the things where you go, this is the thing that we should learn from and we need to adapt it still to data, but we don't need complete rethink versus, hey, the way we do this is just broken and we have to completely come up with a new way. Yeah, I mean, data mesh is that. The four pillars of data mesh is essentially looking at the first principles that we arrived at you know, through practices, or let, let me just rephrase this, the, the principles of data mesh are driven from uh, or abstracted from all of the working and successful practices that we applied to the domain-driven microservices, distributed operational systems. It's just that, but it's been contextualized to data. So, in fact, I've taken all of those practices. I, I, I wish I was a bit smarter and more creative. All I did was I mashed up, right, um, things, solutions that have worked within a really complex, distributed, chaotic system, when, in fact, chaos is embraced and is practices and engineering and kind of applied it to, to data. And now what we're doing is over time, we try to refine it and refine it further and create tools and create practices. So that domain, the very first kind of principle of data mesh around domain-oriented ownership of the data and architecture is it's exactly that. Microservices are domain-oriented functional capabilities, you know, business activities encoded, you know, as computation they're, you know, they, they are part of a cross-functional team. We, you know, we created DevOps and we, you build it, you run it. We create these cross-functional teams that end-to-end -end responsible for a business outcome through technology. All of that is that first principle of data mesh. But what we're saying is let's extend, you know, let's extend what we're doing. Let's extend, let's catch on the momentum that we had with this, modern digital systems and organizations that we build and let's bring the data play into that as opposed to keep data as still a functionally separated activity. Um, so, so adaptation of advances that we had over the last 10 years in the operational world to data is the pillars of data. So let's, let's unpack that again. Data as a product. We have that. We talk about API as a product now for, for a really long time, right? The birth of like API management systems and, and so on. So any, any programmable interface that you're exposing to, to some other machine or human being has to be treated as a product, has to be measured as one. Well. So that's data's product. Um, Self-serve platform. So creation of the, the language platform, the word platform appears in almost every strategy that organization, every organization has. And the reason, and it's platform as a product, again, is a piece that enables that autonomous teams. Like without it, actually, we can't do, we will have functional functional teams because without a platform that abstracts complexity, we need folks that understand the complexity, right? And they get centralized because there are very few of them. You end up with specialization, you end up with functional silo. So that was the platform. And finally, computational policies and computational embedded governance is also the same. Like we went from this, you know, illusion that we had that we would put a, you know, firewall around all of our assets and digital assets and we intercept the traffic at the perimeter and, and we're going to be safe. 
And we're doing that with the centralized data governance. Oh, well, how how are we support the security of the data if it's not in one place? Well, we went there. We were there, right, many years ago. And in operational world, we embrace zero trust architectures that you trust no one at no place, no matter where they are. And you create these, um, you know, controls and observability and recovery response and so on. Um, you insert this at every single point of interaction inside or outside of your system. So, so I think, so you, to your original question is what can we bring and what can we adapt? That's, that's data mesh's recipe. That's, that's what data mesh is about. I think the next question might be, sorry, I'm putting words in your mouth, but it's okay. This really like advanced future that we're talking about, it's going to take years to get to, right? Like some people, on the, whenever I talk and I talk a bit more about the future, they say, oh, you know, data mesh is not real. We don't have data mesh. Like it hasn't happened yet because things, and, and those are the folks that are very comfortable to live in a binary world, like is is or it isn't. Um, world is not binary. So it is an evolution, and I know you are very keen to spread the word around these evolutionary steps that we can get together with the technology we have today. But ha- but think big. And ThoughtWorks, where I worked before, has this wonderful kind of tagline, uh, tagline think big, um, start small, move fast. So we are thinking big about this great future but we have to start small and we have to start somewhere and we want to iterate over it fast yeah and um exactly what you're talking about of i don't think we're going to get where we want to go with what we've got now but we can start heading in that direction right it's not that um we're we're looking to head west and we're hoping that uh, we have to wait you know, for cars for another, you know, uh, we're, we're in the 1850s and we have to wait for another, um, you know, 70 years or whatever before there's enough roads and cars to move there versus we can start making that progress. And it's probably a really bad analogy, but I'm trying to think, think of it's that. Very apt. <laughs> it's going to be injuries and a lot of <laughs> hardship. And, and that's true, right? Yeah. Yeah. And now I'm just thinking of the, the video game, the Oregon Trail and all that fun stuff of, of playing that back <laughs> in the day. But um, yeah, of, of well, and, and I think that is something that I've emphasized of like data mesh is bleeding edge and it's called bleeding for a reason, right? Like we are going like it. What, and what, where I'm trying to go with the question of, of like, we've learned these things from the operational world. And a lot of people are trying to just throw out everything when we're looking at data mesh. And some things we do need to throw out and some things we can make progress with and be prepared to throw out. There are places where I think we can take the practices and tweak them and they'll be relatively well adapted, especially to getting us moving, but it might not get us all the way there. And there are certain practices where we know what we've got now, like what got us here won't get us there. And like trying to differentiate what's baby, what's bathwater, what's good now, what's what's good enough for now, what because so many people are thinking that they have to reinvent the entire world, right? And when people are starting to look at that, you, you, like you said, you were in the operational world. You went through the, this is the only way to do microservices. And then everyone going, no, that's, that's silly. That doesn't work. That's, that's stupid. Let's, let's be practical about it. But when people are looking at that, how do they decide? And, and what, what do you think they can just tweak so that they aren't saying I have to start completely from scratch in the way that I do data? Yeah. I, I mean, i Probably not the best person to answer this because there is a you know a degree of understanding organizational change and be- people behavior change, you know that that you know specialists people who are specialized in that like cognitive science. I think there is there's like so much different. So many different disciplines need to come together to introduce those micro steps toward change. Um, that I'm definitely not the right person to answer. But the way I, if I put my 
architect hat on, right? And there is, you know, architecture and organizational structure and communication structures uh, mimic each other. Um, what I would do is, uh, I think what James Lewis at ThoughtWorks calls inverse Conway's maneuver, where you kind of start shifting now I'm going to completely butcher it. Either you start kind of shifting your architecture so that your people start reorganizing themselves or you reorganize your people to force the architecture to change, right? So I think in this case, yeah, we want to start moving people around and em- emphasizing and getting the intercommunication right first, creating those seams and boundaries Implementation can be totally messy, right? It can be it can be still not super optimized. So let's put that, let's let's go from the analogy of like microservices and then come back to what it means with data mesh, right? In the microservices world, our services looked pretty ugly. Like these were being built on still like early days on big giant app servers, right? And then maybe lightweight app servers, like they went from, I don't know, on WebSphere to Tomcat and then embedded Tomcat and then embedded, you know, kind of various different engines and so on and so on. And then you end up with this like really tiny container with this nice interface. But that was an evolution of implementation. But what we did get, try to implement first and get right was the APIs, was how this service interacted with other services, with other applications, and how it automatically configured itself right on the platform. So automation of creation of these things, because we're going to have many of them, and then the seams between the services. So we had very quickly, we had you know, HTTP. Of course, we adopted HTTP, we created REST, and that evolved over time as well. And then the tooling around observability and things like that started shaping, assuming this new meta architecture, this microservices architecture, right, at the macro level. So I think this, if we adopt the same approach and assume, okay, we don't have this data mesh native capabilities that out of the box will give us, you know, a great data product with all the APIs and all the implementation and so on. But what we can do is we can say the implementation is still messy. Maybe we still use a you know messy pipeline for a particular data product. We still use, I don't know, a warehouse table, which is probably an overkill for a data product. We can still use that. But let's let's encap, let's bring, first of all, let's bring the people together that create that cross-functional domain and domain-oriented ownership of this data product. So start start moving the people so they can they can recreate this architecture around domain-oriented ownership of the data. Let's next thing, let's define the interfaces. How do you get this data? How do we model the data? How do we communicate the data, giving access to the data? Implementation is still messy. And then over time, we can optimize, optimize, optimize the, the actual implementation, right? What's inside of it. So I think that's putting my architect hat and having seen what went with what happened with microservices, I think that's how I would approach it in, in terms of incremental shifts. And it was it was funny because even both of those on the people side and the technology side, you were talking about, or the architectural side, you were talking about the communication, the lines of communication, because the APIs are the technical communication between the the different microservices, the different teams, the different domains. And that is kind of the APIs and the data quanta are are that for within data mesh. And so, but you were talking about, um, so you were talking about a Conway maneuver, I think. Inverse, what I meant to say was inverse Conway maneuver, which is you reorganize your teams to promote the architecture that you want. And in fact, the opposite of that is happening right now. So what is happening, one of the anti-pattern is that uh, still under the chief data officer, still within the data team, people try to do data product work. Like you talk to a person and say, oh, I am the, you know, I am the head of the data products. Okay, where's your team? 
well, they're the data engineers, right? They're the data people. So that's, that's not promoting a new architecture. So what you do instead is say, okay, where is your e-commerce team? Where is your marketing team? Where is your customer team? You know, where, where are those domain teams, digital domain teams? And say, okay, now let's, yeah, maybe let's initially let's augment them with the data engineers. Let's move some of these data engineers there. Let's say you are now, we want to have a data interface out of this domain. What that data interface look like, analytical data interface, let's define that. And that could be as simple as a still, I'll give you some files, you know, in our warehouse. And then over time, and give them a mission that you are responsible for this particular domain, you know, data as a product. And then over time, now you kind of recreate the, the concept of the data quantum or the data quantum or data product. Uh, so, yes, that's the inverse kind of way remove a maneuver path to promote the right architecture. Yeah. Well, and, uh, um, I've, it's funny because I've heard people use it either interchangeably. It's kind of like the word literally means both literally and figuratively. But like there's a lot of people that are trying to just start only with the technology and the architecture and that, that they think that they can all of a sudden shift everybody's um ways of working simply by saying, well, we've got this new tooling or this thing is the right way. And it's like, I just don't, I don't see how, especially with how radical of a shift, if it's like a diff, if it's a small shift in the way that you're doing data, great. But if it's a radical shift in the way that we're looking at doing data for data mesh. So I think exactly what you're saying. Like I'm also getting a little bit kind of worried about this oh this is not a tech problem this is just a people problem again coming back to that binary modality of human thinking i don't i don't know why we we can't be a little bit more shades of gray type people as in you know it, it's it is a, absolutely like what i just said was well let's 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 move people around let's give them new jobs let's promote let's let's organize people for that kind of the architecture but if these folks are fighting day to day working with the technology that assumes a centralized access and they're stepping on each other's toes and they have so much friction how are we supporting them so that the tooling to re help reshaping both the behavior and the structure is also as important and as necessary, right? Um, so I think it's, it's you're right. We can't just say, I'm going to throw this tech at you and you will evolve into this new model, but I'm going to actually enable you and I'm going to support you by giving a technology that gives you superpowers that you didn't know even have, Right. Um, and those, that's, that's, that's also take time. Yeah. I, I think exactly what you're talking about there. It's it, the analogy in my head was, um, trying to do, you know, I come from Iowa, so large scale farming and trying to do that with a shovel, right? Like it's a good tool when you're doing your backyard planting. So you can do quote unquote farming, you can have your garden with it, but when you're doing large scale farming, it's not really going to, it's not going to do what you want. And, and kind of a lot of what you were talking about of, this feels like that that old saying of, you know, the journey of a thousand miles starts with the first steps or whatever. And like where I think is a good place to kind of wrap up a lot of, of what we've talked about about this revolution versus evolution and, and all of that is um, that binary thinking. Is there a certain place that you think that people are thinking far too binary or is there a way that you think um, maybe, you know, you're, you're such an avid reader. Is there something uh, around that you, that helped you get very familiar with, with being comfortable with ambiguity or like how, where, where do you think there's the most binary thinking that we need to break? And like, how have you worked with people or how have you worked with yourself to get comfortable with ambiguity? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, it keeps me thinking deep, but I'm just going to stay super practical here on the topic of data mesh. But I think this probably deserves an interesting conversation as, um, you know, how we make decisions. I mean, there is, yeah, I'm not going to go there, but I think in the last election of US was a very good example of how simplistic, like simplified decision making for people 
I shall fix this really hard problem for you. And yay, we vote, you know, without even thinking. So we, we, we really like these simple systems of decision making. We don't like cognitive load. So yes and no, you know, is or isn't those sort of framing um, appeals to us, right? Because we don't have to think too hard. Uh, but coming to <laughs> coming back to data mesh, I think um, the the maybe just one thing to clarify: what is comp- negotiable? What's not negotiable? What is what is that line you draw that in the sand that it is it isn't or it is or isn't? I think the reason I define data mesh as a set of principles, and, and they evolved a little bit, but they have pretty much stayed constant for a while now was because I assumed the application of these principles will change, the practices will evolve, the technology will improve, however, the principles will last. So if these principles change, then we're not talking about data mesh anymore. We're talking about something else. We're talking about some evolution of data mesh. Uh, so the, the line in the sand in terms of are we doing data mesh or are we doing data mesh, I think the principles are a good way to, to define that, right? It's just a fuzzy line still where data mesh, where we really try to adhere to the principles. When it comes to the application, I actually materialize it in real world. I think that's where there's a spectrum and the spectrum is around evolution as in, and it's about the maturity of the technology and the organization at a point in time um, and that would change I think that's that is not a binary conversation so if someone comes and say well data mesh is not real it's from the future yeah there are parts of it that are from future but there are parts of it that are from present and will make it work and that's true about any other movement where the paradigm w- went was beyond, was introduced, um, you know, kind of transcending the existing technology. And we gave the example of microservices, right? Cloud is the same. Like you come up with an approach that it transcends the technology you have at that moment. Um, And then your technology and your approaches um, will catch up. there is a wonderful um, quote about uh, imagination that I put by Carl Sagan that I put in my book uh, at the at the beginning of the book, if, um, which is about you know this idea of when we imagine something, it's not real, it hasn't happened. But if we don't imagine, we don't go to the places that we want to go one day. I'll, I'll find out the, the actual quote and I add it at the end. So. So then talk about that non-binary evolution. Let's let's look at a real example, right? So we just talked about as a, as a single step, maybe you can bring your a couple of data engineers to your um, digital team. Sit them, get them sit next to the app dev teams for that particular domain. Um, that is an evolutionary step. Um, it's probably not a better state that you were before. Probably we're going down a hockey stick in terms of efficiency because now we're saying we've got to add, what, two data engineers to every app dev team. But that's generally how the change happens because you usually get, you go through this hockey stick. You make a change, it gets a little bit worse, and then you add more improvement and it gets a lot better, right? You go up the hockey stick. So... So then what would be the next evolution from that? Actually, the next evolution from that is empowering the app developers to seamlessly cre- you know, put maybe data product creation as part of the maybe same, you know, same CI, CD, same continuous delivery of the app. Uh, maybe they don't need this enhancing the platform so that a domain digital team doesn't need specialized data engineers. That's why the platform thinking existed, right? So you start then going up the hockey stick in terms of like optimizing the, for effectiveness and the, the, the productivity of your teams and the number of specialists that you need. Um, yes, are we there yet? Are we at the point that every active team just popping out like data products, successful, long-standing teams, selling them without having specialized people? No, but 
that's what we were working toward. Maybe end with this quote that I butchered, which is imagination will often carry us to worlds that never were, but without it, we go nowhere. And, and what, what you were talking about there, I think, is the, the in venture capital, they call the J curve because you have negative returns early and then your outsized returns come later. But it's, it's just like um, profit. You're, you're investing early so that you can profit later, right? It, yeah. I want to give you a chance to, if there's any wrapping up words that, that you'd like to do. But again, I, I love chatting with you. You're, it's, it's always enlightening and it always is, is uh, enter. Uh, energating or uh, uh, enervating. I, I can't think of the word, but it just gives me energy because it's just so fun to see your passion and how much empathy you have for what this can mean for the world. If we were all, you know, we can cure diseases, we can tackle climate change better. We can do all these things if we do better things with our data and people in data can live better lives than, <laughs> than you know, the data engineer stuck in the middle, your old... Uh, uh, figure of the frowny faces of the data engineers just always sticks with me. That was what really made me say I, I should get involved with this. So, uh, is there any way you'd want to kind of close out this uh, kind of Cunian session about evolution and revolution and paradigm shift? I, I think I, I think we're good. I think um, maybe I I end again with um, my ex employer's uh, tagline: "Think big." You know, start small, move fast, but we've got to have that bigger vision of where we want to get to. And that would be our compass in terms of what what, what is roughly getting us to um, to that destination. And I think we talked about that and that's that paradigm shift, right? That's the Conian paradigm shift that we want to have a very decentralized yet responsible, right? Distributed yet interoperable um, way of sharing data and sharing data for you, you know, getting higher order value, uh, getting insights, applying machine learning. Um, yeah, I just, uh, just stop there. Thanks again to Jamak for her time here today. Please follow her on LinkedIn and keep an eye out for interesting developments with what she's doing next. Thanks.